we're going to indulge you with Wimbledon talk momentarily, but listening earlier this week, it may have been the NBC Sports Bet the Edge podcast, which Drew Densick, our next guest, hosts, or it may have been the deep dive with Andy Molitor in the whale. That is Drew Densick because he's at whale underscore capper on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, it may have been one of those podcasts. We're talking about teams that could be the worst in the NFL this year. Uh, first off, um, I tend to view this in a couple of different groups. I could see things going south for Washington, and especially with new ownership. They get rid of Ron Rivera before the end of the season, but there's enough talent on defense, particularly on the line if they're healthy. They have enough skill position talent that even if Sam Howell's not the guy at quarterback, they could piecemeal some kind of wins together. The teams that have got my eyes for the worst teams in the NFL this year, maybe it's Vegas because nothing says great GM work quite like John Gruden constructing a roster. Boy, that was fantastic. And then Tampa Bay, they're feeling the effects of the Brady all-in effort. Same thing with the Rams, who are feeling the effects of the bleep them pick Super Bowl run. But the one that jumps out to me, I'm an Eagles fan. I have no faith in Jonathan Gannon. Never did. Good luck to them in Arizona. If they had Kyler Murray, my projections might not even change on that. Uh, From a value standpoint, they're projected to be the worst team, so maybe they don't fit that description. But from a how in the world do you expect them to be any good this year, that's the one that has me. Because at least with the Rams, they've got Sean McVay. Like, they have stars in Sean McVay, who I think can at least coach their way to some wins. Todd Bowles in Tampa Bay, maybe he's not the best, but again, I think there are enough pieces there and the coach is at least competent for that. I don't think there are pieces or good coaching in Arizona, so I have no faith in them. And Washington, even if coaching goes south, Rivera can be competent. Elite, I wouldn't say that, but competent, whereas in Arizona, I have my real concerns. Did I lay this out well enough for Drew Dinsick, who has a different take on this as he joins us now in the fast lane? Drew, um, are you in the belief that Arizona should be considered one of the worst teams in the NFL along with the Rams, and they are by far the worst? Or do some of the other teams we outline, like Tampa Bay, the Raiders, and maybe the Commanders, fit that description as well? This is a fun conversation to have, especially because you teased Commanders off the top. The biggest <laughs> edge I have going into Week 1 is Commanders minus 6 over the Cardinals. Cardinals are my lowest power-rated team Week 1 with the bullet. It is... Um, it's not a professional roster. Colt McCoy is going to be behind one of the weakest interior offensive lines in the NFL. Uh, you have a new head coach, an offensive coordinator, and Drew Fencing, who, by the way, is younger than Colt McCoy, never called plays before in his life. This looks like an absolute disaster waiting to happen in terms of you know how you ultimately are going to be scoring points and being competitive. Uh, Sam Harrell, you know, Sam Howell could go out there and throw three picks, and it might not matter. The Commanders, as far as I can tell, you need to get to about 17 points to be able to cover the six points in this game. So uh, I do have a bet on the under there. I think it should be closer to 37. Uh, and I very much like uh, Commanders land six as far as uh, a side goes for week one. Um, now, whether the Cardinals remain that bad for the whole season, I think depends a lot on the recovery of Kyler Murray and sort of the progression of the young coaching staff, which may come into their own as you get later into the season. Um, and, you know, I could see them by the middle point or even towards the end of the season being a bet on team, uh, stumbling their way to something like three, maybe four wins. Um, but uh, coming out of the gate, they are no question in my mind the uh, the weakest squad in the NFL this season. Um, and, you know, the team that I would have them kind of competing with for fewest wins would be uh, the L.A. Rams, largely because the L.A. Rams have a defense that's going to be, you know, made up of Aaron Donald and, uh, 10 other guys who were replacement level uh, quality. And so, you know, the Rams, 
not convinced. I'm not convinced, at least, that Stafford's going to be healthy all season. I'm not convinced that you know they're going to keep guys like Donald uh, and Cooper Cup on the roster just because you know those are valuable trade assets if you're not really competing. And uh, you know, so ultimately, I think there will be plenty of teams in the NFL over the balance of the season that you think are the worst coming out of the gate. For me, it's pretty clearly the Cardinals. Um, but I do think the Rams in like the ten to one range is a fun play in terms of a team with the fewest wins. When you mention the Rams as a potential play for teams with the fewest wins, and you outline their lack of defense, you outline the deficiencies up and down with the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Washington may get rid of their coach, but do you do you remain hesitant on them maybe being the worst team, even if that happens, because there are enough talented pieces around there that they could find some victories. Whereas uh, I've got a lot of faith in Sean McVay, but there's just they're not horses there. I mean, you're trying to win the Kentucky Derby with donkeys. And then, obviously, the uh, the Arizona Cardinals, who have seemingly nothing right now, and maybe that's a one-and-done coaching experiment. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, it's it's a fair way to qualify it. Um, it's, God, man, I, I, I'm really just, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty surprised that McVay even really is sticking around, honestly. Um, it's, uh, it seems, at least to me, like this rebuild is going to take – three, five years in in terms of competitiveness and uh, the way they treated their draft capital last handful of years, trading it for players who are ready to win now is, you know, the bills come due. Um, I could see entirely McVay not being the guy that sticks around and does the rebuild just because he's, you know, got other opportunities. He's got his Super Bowl. He's got, you know, he's well compensated. Um, The Jonathan Gannon experience is going to be weird. Uh, He's a guy that I think, got a ton of credit for a defense that was pretty overrated last year in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was, they played one of the softest schedules, a ton of really weak quarterbacks. Uh, and I think overall you have, you know, then, and then in this off season, there was quite a decent amount of attrition, particularly in the linebacking and, uh, and secondary core there. So, you know, this is, this is not a guy that I think of as having sort of the answer key in terms of the future of football. Um, now, that's not to say he won't ultimately get there because there's been plenty of guys that I looked at and said, you know, he's not the guy. And one of them was Zach Taylor, who you know went to a Super Bowl last year at AFC Championship game. You know, their Super Bowl two years ago, championship game last year, and uh, you know has a team that's on the precipice of you know really kind of breaking through. So. You know, you know t- coaches can learn. They have a lot of different roles and responsibilities. Ultimately, you know, a guy like Gannon could be a guy that you know finds his place and finds his uh, you know finds his voice. But uh, right now, I'm not seeing it. And I think, uh, yeah, Cardinals pretty 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 easy dead fade uh, coming out of the gate for me. And uh, and you know, Commanders with Ron Rivera being potentially a lame duck is definitely something to keep an eye on. But um, the talent on the defensive side of the ball for that team is unequivocal. They have one of the deepest and most talented defensive lines in football. It's top five by my numbers. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, young players in the linebacking core and secondary who are improving. Uh, and really, they're a team that is perceived to be poor, perceived to not have much of a chance to get into the playoff mix. Um, but they're, you know, they have a quarterback in Sam Powell who's a complete unknown who, if he does, you know, anything noteworthy, is going to take them to at least league average offensively. So. Um, you know, kind of a team that I have properly rated by, you know, the market has properly rated right now, but only has upside uh, if they find something uh, exciting on offense under Eric Bieniemy. There will be more time over the summer to look ahead to the NFL with Drew Densick at Whale underscore Capper. He is the whale 
as part of the deep dive with Andy Molitor and the Whale podcast, and he's also with NBC Sports Bet the Edge. I have not had a chance to listen to your Beating the Book podcast that you and Gil Alexander did to preview Wimbledon, but looking ahead to this particular event, the women's draw and the men's draw. We will go ladies first on this one, and I'll start off by asking this question. In the top half of the bracket, it's Iga Svatek, and then in the bottom half, it seems like all the other heavy hitters. Is that a pretty reasonable <laughs> description of this? Yeah, hugely lopsided draw. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, and it's funny, too, because coming into this tournament pre-draw, I'm very, very excited for the women's side. Uh, I thought there were 12 women that had a realistic chance to take this title home. Um, that's unusual. Usually the, you know, the realistic contenders is something like four, five, maybe six. And we had 12 women who were playing really well and, uh, and no kind of clear, you know, clear, you know, true blue, uh, bona fide, you know, champ that you're worried about. Um, and then we see the draw and the two of those women are on the top half and 10 are on the bottom. Uh, so it has now been a complete imbalance in terms of you know just quality uh, you know quality players, and I think you know the top half of the draw would be very very surprised now if uh, you know Iga does not come out of uh, quarter one, um, and I like uh, a young player in Veronica Kudermatova uh, to be the class of quarter two, um, and you know that that to me is a very tasty potential semifinal on the top half of the women's draw. And then the bottom half is just going to be quite awesome. There are relatively equal strength players in in, uh, uh, in every section of that draw to where you're going to have really, really good third-round matches, fourth-round matches, and then the quarterfinals could just be epic. So um, Q3 is a little bit softer, in my opinion, than Q4. Q4 has you know just awesome talent and different game styles and, um, you know, and, and just outstanding service and you know players who are in form uh and so that one is kind of the most wide open in terms of who ultimately takes it home um and in q3 i, I tend to lean towards petra kvitova who's won here twice uh is having a really really good season having taken home a championship in miami which is a really tough tough test um and uh you know didn't play much on clay so she's relatively fresh she got a title in berlin on grass already this year she's obviously playing with confidence and in form uh, and uh, she's the only player that I've staked uh, with any, you know, with any meaningful return uh, in the outright markets um, to uh, ultimately take home the title. But uh, I think she's still a fair play at her prices for winning quarter three. Uh, in addition to being there, there, there is still some value if you can find her in the twelve to one range out there as you're shopping around for women's future prices. I don't know if it's still there, but I know one book in Virginia had it at 18 to 1 yesterday, so I grabbed that one. Uh, it's just something fun to have in pocket to see what happens. Um, the other part to this is uh, yes, there's Ega in the top half, and maybe she gets challenged, maybe she doesn't until the semifinals, and the bottom half looks loaded for the ladies' side of things. Is this the kind of year, kind of situation where from Iga Svatek, you know, she looks like she's coming her own in grass, but it's clearly not her best surface. You've got the injury concerns or the, you know, the mental state concerns for others like Elena Rabakina, Anj Jabor, and Arena Sabalinka that maybe this is one of those years we get a couple of dark horses that uh, are meeting in the finals and hopefully not giving us the Anj Jabor syndrome from last year. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm very hopeful. Um, the, you know, the, the distinction for grass is you're looking for players who have just overwhelming power on serve. The rallies are substantially shorter than what you see on clay. Um, and, you know, there's reward for being able to, you know, 
to to play precision tennis um, closer to the net. Uh, a lot of clay tennis is baseline rallies. It's uh, you know kind of strategy that's that's uh, uh, you know extended over you know a rally that might take twenty to you know thirty shots uh, in some of the high leverage moments. Whereas you know grass tennis is just bang bang bang. Um, and so power matters, uh, you know, and, and serve rhythm timing on your serve matters and, uh, you know, movement, particularly up towards the net matters. And for whatever it's worth, we've seen Ega master clay. We've seen her master hard court, particularly slower hard court, uh, where it's all about, you know, the power you generate, uh, and, uh, your ability to sustain long rallies and find precision tennis. And, uh, and grass is just a different beast. We haven't really seen her ever, in my opinion, at least give you, um, you know, high enough, uh, you know, just a, just a signal that she's got it solved. Um, and that may happen this fortnight. You know, by the time we get to the middle of July, we may laugh and be like, can you believe Eagle was ever a three to one to win any tournament? Um, you know, particularly with this soft of a draw. Um, but the fact remains, we just haven't really seen it from her to this point on this surface. And really, even in her kind of warm-up in Bad Homburg, where she pulled out uh, today, actually, because of, uh, quote-unquote, illness, maybe food poisoning, <laughs> tough, tough to tell, uh, I, I think at least, uh, you know, she still looks pretty unnatural the way she's moving on grass. So, I'm, you know, I'm willing to pay to see it. Drew Dinsick, whale underscore capper, his social media platforms. He's with the Deep Dive with Andy Molitor and the Whale podcast. He's also with NBC Sports Bet the Edge podcast. And check out the Beating the Book podcast. They have a Wimbledon preview that's out today. I'll be listening to that on my morning run tomorrow to get ready for Wimbledon, uh, the women's and the men's side. Speaking of running, by the way, there was once this race where my wife came home, Drew, and she said, congratulations, you finished third. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, it was great. I finished third. And she's like, well, why that attitude? And my response was, well, (laughs) the guy in second was seven minutes ahead of me. I ran a half marathon in a minute, an hour and 24. The guy in second was in an hour and 17. And that guy was way behind the winner who was in an hour and 10 minutes. Is that kind of where we are right now, where Djokovic is really far ahead of everyone, Alcarez is really far ahead of everyone else, and then there's everyone else back in third and beyond. That's a fair description, and I got to tell you, congratulations! One twenty-four for a half marathon is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, I know you're saying it in the context of you got beat by you know some semi pros by the sounds of it, but one twenty-four <laughs> yep. is really really fast. So congratulations. Um, the uh, the state of men's tennis is basically exactly like you described. Uh, you have a player in Djokovic who's won this title seven times, can tie Roger Federer with eight if he wins this fortnight. Um, and, you know, he's just got an absolutely superlative record on grass, winning percentage in the ballpark of 85%, hasn't lost since 2018. I mean, the superlatives go on and on. Uh, he is coming in uh, without any warm-up, really, and, you know, coming off of a pretty emotional title uh, in Roland Garros where he won his 23rd slam. Uh, so there may be a, a little bit of a letdown here, and he may be just kind of assuming that uh, the field is going to give this title to him. Um, but, you know, we, it's still pretty clear that he has uh, at least, uh, you know, 50%, 60% chance to win this title, uh, which is a lot uh, for a men's slam that has 128 participants. Carlos Alcaraz is a guy that I do think can win, surely. He's the only other player in the field that I think has a better than a 2% chance to win. Um, and uh, he's a player that I have circled to watch to see how he continues to grow and you know learn his how to adapt his very unique and extremely talented skill set 
to the uniqueness of, of grass surface. Uh, he's been in London for a while. He was he is the title holder uh, of the uh, Queen's Championship, which uh, also takes place on grass, and um, obviously is playing with a ton of confidence, having just won that championship. And um, I'm perfectly willing to suspend disbelief that he's going to have another moment where you know cramping and the nerves get to him the way we saw in the French Open. Uh, if it is a final between him and Djokovic, which is in all likelihood where we're headed. It's kind of crazy. Wimbledon starts Monday, but the men's tournament really doesn't start until two weeks from now when we are kind of preparing for that final between those two players, the way I see this, um, particularly the way the draw broke. It's just not really anyone that has a meaningful chance, I don't think, uh, to you know disrupt that potential matchup in the final. Um, and you know I'm, I, I haven't bet anything on the men's side. I know it seems crazy not to just, why didn't you just bet Djokovic if he's going to win? And uh, you know, there's, in the back of my head, I think Alcaraz is live in that head-to-head. I think the market is going to give us a pretty awesome price to bet in that moment. Uh, so I'm going to exercise a little patience and see if uh, there's enough, you know, reason to uh, to back him in the head-to-head against uh, Djokovic. But uh, if you know, if if we're going to catch something like three to one or better. Uh, in that matchup, then I think that's a bet on Alcaraz. Drew Dinsick with us here in the Fast Lane from NBC Sports Bet the Edge podcast and the deep dive with Andy Molitor and the Whale. He's at Whale underscore Capper on Twitter and Instagram on W226BG, Timberlake, WVGM, AM, Lynchburg, WMNA, Gretna, Danville, Southside, across our Virginia Talk Radio Network platforms and the CBS Sports Radio Lynchburg app. Drew, the, the matchup you mentioned for men's tennis as well, most people expect it to be Djokovic versus Alcaraz in the final, thank God, not the semifinal like the French Open, uh, that they at least seem to have gotten that part right when it comes to the draw. What do you think is more likely to happen is it Algaraz doesn't make it there because he's got a let up on this type of surface and that's occasionally happened from time to time where he has a let up but not as much recently or Djokovic is called overlooking someone like we've seen in prior years and you get that fluke loss before you get to championship Sunday uh, definitely more likely that Alcaraz stumbles and it's not about necessarily it's not even really about experience in my in my opinion it's much more about the uh, quality of players that are in his quarter, um, he's going to have a, he's going to have his work cut out for him to get out of uh, you know to get to the semifinals. Uh, at that point, I would expect his semifinal opponent is going to be more or less a walkover. Um, but uh, the quarters that he that he has been uh, assigned to is uh, it's full of good players and uh, good young players, some unknowns. Uh, you know the the absolute popcorn firework. Uh, type of match that um, you know has me the most excited before we get to the final is the potential quarterfinal in uh, in Q1 between uh, Alcaraz and Holger Rune. Like that could actually be pretty epic. And uh, you know, when we're talking about tennis and handicapping in five years, the discussion we're having now about you know Djokovic versus Alcaraz could pretty clearly, in my opinion, be Djokovic versus Rune. I mean, excuse me, Alcaraz versus Rune. Like he's that talented of a player and. Um, you know, that young in his progression with the ceiling that we just aren't sure where he's going at. Um, and so seeing those two potentially match up on grass in a best of five could be pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite hopeful that we see that. Um, but, you know, a lot of talented players in his draw, a lot of inexperience as well. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, there's a non-zero chance that somebody uh, – somebody surprises them just from a standpoint of quality of tennis as opposed to even Alcaraz letting down. 
You mentioned that, and, and we got a couple more questions with Drew Densick here in the fast lane, and we're grateful for his time, of course. Uh, you, obviously, you and most all of us seem to believe that it's going to be Alcaraz and Djokovic as two of the four semifinalists. That means there are two quarters where you might get a fun long shot to come through. Do you have your eye on anyone in those other two quarters? Uh, it's tough to have any confidence in you know who's going to win Q2 or Q3, uh, and I do think you ought to shoot four long shots there. Uh, the seeded players, the name name brand players, to me, all look like potential early outs. Um, do not love anything I've seen from the way Medvedev is approaching his his uh, grass uh, tournament season this year at all. It just does not look like he has a read or a feel for um, you know how to adapt his game to uh, to be strong on grass. And similarly, Sissipas in the second quarter. He drew some pretty ridiculous uh, round one and round two opponents in terms of just you know strong players and uh, and even then doesn't really seem to have his head entirely in the game of tennis right now so he's a pass. Um, Yannick Sinner, best player in Q3, uh, has not seemed to grasp best of five tennis to this point in his career. Has something going on mentally on top of potentially an injury, having retired his last match. Um, so I ultimately think Q2, Q3. Uh, you're trying to shoot for some big prices. Um, if I had to kind of circle one that I'm, uh, you know, that's probably throwing away money, but has me at least a little bit interested in quarter two, <laughs> it's on Maxime Cressy. He's an American player who uh, has been quite poor this year, um, but he's got the absolutely perfect skill set to, uh, you know, to be able to excel on grass. He's one of the only players on tour that does a serve and volley still. Um, and, uh, you know, he's going to catch a lot of players by surprise potentially. And, um, you know, it's, he's been a massive disappointment this year to this point. But uh, I still uh, still think he's got a non, you know, he's got a, a, a meaningful chance to, uh, to hit at a huge price in quarter two. And then uh, similarly, another guy who did no, no grass warm up and does no, you know, no grass winning on his record at all, but does have a really, really, really good serve, really high ace percentage, uh, and can get in and out of points quickly and is in quarter three is a French player named Quentin Halley's. Um, if you can find Cressy and Halley's in, say, the 40 to one range, um, I don't know that you, <laughs> I don't know that we're having a big celebratory party uh, in you know in two weeks, but uh, it at least uh, could find you know could get interesting there if those guys can make a deep run putting together some good tennis. So um, I don't you know low confidence, but uh, definitely would recommend you know find a player, find a reason, uh, find a price in quarter two and quarter three, and, and have a little bit of fun. All right, last one for you. And again, thank you for the time today. Is Drew Densick from the NBC Sports Bet the Edge podcast and the deep dive with Andy Molitor and the Whale is with us. You can keep up with his work at Whale underscore Capper, his social media platforms. Um, what ends up happening in the finals? Not necessarily from a betting standpoint, but just for the casual fans out there, you know, is it wild cards in one of them? Is it you're not sweating at all because everything goes the exact way you projected? How do you actually see the finals unfolding? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, on the men's side for sure. Um, in a perfect world, Alcaraz gets through unscathed, plays Djokovic in the in the uh, Wimbledon final, and it's one of the better matches we have all year. Um, I think the pressure is now on Djokovic as opposed to Alcaraz, which was the case in the uh, in Roland Garros semifinal we saw. 
Um, and uh, I think Alcaraz's game is unique enough, and there's not enough tape uh, for you know for Djokovic's uh, analytics team to really have a plan to stop him before that match is underway. I think that gives Alcaraz an absolute you know that gives him a chance. Uh, I think he could. Um, take a couple, take at least one, you know, the first set, maybe the first two sets as Djokovic tries to figure out his game. And, um, you know, at that point, if he can find any kind of reserves to close the door and win 3-1 or 3-2, that would be the most fun outcome for me for sure. But uh, my best case scenario for me is going to be to go into that match with an Alcaraz money line and in the 3-1 or better range. Um, and uh, and then probably live trade the matches. Uh, you kind of get a feel for uh, if Djokovic can solve his game because, as we saw last year in the quarterfinals, when Djokovic ran into an inform Yannick Sinner, it took him five sets, and that was entirely because he just didn't have uh, enough of an idea of how to solve it before that match was underway. Um, and honestly, Alcaraz has more of the intestinal fortitude I care about <laughs> in terms of backing a money line uh, than Yannick Sinner does. So. Uh, I'll predict uh, a 3-2 final in favor of Alcaraz, uh, and I think that would be a really fun outcome there. Women's side, uh, I'll go Petra Kvitova straight sets over Iga. I think Iga's going to get there just based on how soft her draw is, um, but I can't get over how good uh, Petra's played this season, and particularly um, you know, her, her uh, Wimbledon pedigree uh, matters to me. So uh, Kvitova for the women's. Well, I hope you speak those into existence because as somebody who's got Djokovic for the calendar slam and plus money, Alcaraz plus 450 on the men's side, and then on the women's, Kvitova at 18 to 1 and Iga at 5 to 1, and a calendar slam for Iga at 39 to 1. If those are the, the final matchups, I will be able to breathe a lot more lightly in a couple of weekends than uh, what will probably unfold, which is none of them are there in any form or fashion. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Uh, Wimbledon's. Uh... Wimbledon's great. Uh, yeah. Tennis is on at the right time of day. You know, you're watching it on your phone at the pool or at the beach. That's 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 the way to do it. No doubt. Although for me, it's listening to it. Which uh, little word to the wise? Maybe you get a little advantage there in terms of being ahead of the game. Uh, I completely what's agree with that. But, uh, and I do it at work because I can't really watch, but I can listen while I'm typing up reports and all that other fun stuff. So there you kind go. Of checking it out. Anyway, Drew, thank you for your time today. We'll keep it locked to the NBC Sports Bet the Edge podcast for regular updates. Also, your appearances uh, with Gil Alexander and his friends at the Beating the Book podcast, and of course the deep dive with andy molitor and the whale and not to forget will underscore capper on twitter and instagram enjoy wimbledon as well and uh, we'd love to catch up again soon all right you got it best of luck and uh, have a great great uh, summer indeed drew densick with us here in the fast lane again thank you to him for his time today in the fast lane that does it for us a big thanks to trey to ty have a wonderful independence day weekend yourself we're back wednesday afternoon five to six right here in the fast lane